lovely people. Welcome to the first ever Valentine's Day edition Aww. of Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Eric. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Happy Valentine's Day, To Avi. you as well. Lovely day. We're not going to be able to say first much longer. I know. we're coming up on our one-year anniversary I'm next so month. I'm so excited about that. So this is the that. first. We got one more. We got a first Valentine's Day. I think mm-hmm. we got a first St. Patrick's Day, and then I think we're moving on. Then we're moving on. To we're going to be. Yeah, we're going to be on our first year anniversary. Looking forward to that. So we have a big show today. Sure do. Yeah, we have Kenny Cooper uh, coming up later, WHYY's suburban reporter. He's going to be talking about that special election that took place yesterday night in Bucks County. The results are in. Fascinating district as well. We'll we'll talk about that. The big subject today is the, the winning defamation lawsuit filed by climatologist Michael Mann, who will be here in studio. Uh, he sued a couple of bloggers, some folks uh, who were fighting, you know, writing all sorts of things about um, some of the climate science that he had come up with. You remember he has that favorite hockey, that famous hockey stick graph that blew up a couple of decades ago. Well, they were writing all sorts of things about him. He sued them and won. We'll talk about that and why he calls it a win for science. And then Gen Z, Avi, they say they want let's less sex and romance on screen they don't want to see it they don't want to see it and they'll titanic make the case get for out of it. here they'll make the case for it yeah we're on valentine's day from <laughs> the mouths of, of the babes yes. yeah um if you want to talk to michael mann have some comments on that big defamation lawsuit uh give us a call 888-477-9499 you can also email studio two at whyy.org and i want to make sure we mention that if you want to hang out with us Tomorrow, yes, yes. we're doing a live Studio 2 taping of a live Studio 2 show uh, in front of an audience. And you can be in the audience. All you have to do is be a member of WHYY and log on to WHYY.org slash events and get your ticket. It's tomorrow night. So uh, come by WHYY HQ. We'd love to see you. We'd love to meet you. Um, and now, Cherry. Yes. Let's talk about some news headlines. Mm-hmm. This story it couldn't help but catch our eye. Mm-hmm. Written by B. Foreman and Asim Shukla at the Inquirer. And it's all hinged on data that I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. Philly is the most single, unmarried big city in the country. And this holds true across age groups, across racial demographics. Mm-hmm. The percentage of Philadelphians who are married is notably consistently low i never knew that before Mm -hmm. they did a whole article about it in the inky and you think it's kind of a frivolous topic but it's actually a pretty serious article that gets into some of the potential causes i would encourage you to check it out but it also just again the hook itself surprised me i had never seen this data before yeah i i'm not surprised because i'm not surprised because i know a lot of single people and i know a lot of people who complain about the dating scene here in philadelphia and so your um, anecdotal evidence yeah was overwhelming even before seeing this data you were convinced yeah and and it's it's worse for african americans because you know um they're the most single <laughs> of all the ethnic groups even though in philadelphia all the ethnic groups no matter what race you are no matter what 
you know, age you are, you tend to be, you're less likely to be married if you live in Philly. Yeah. But among African-Americans, it's literally the worst. Yeah. Huh. So I know a lot of folks who have been struggling in this area. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, um, they say economic inequality, education disparities, you know, one, one person's way more educated than the other. Mm. Uh, also, when people couple up, they tend to move out of the city and into yeah. the suburbs. But you All would those think that would things. be true in a lot of cities. Yeah. And so I'm still left wondering it was a little bit. Interesting. Like why Philly is such an outlier. It's based on census data. It seems to be legit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's to me, it's fascinating and, and still a bit of a mystery. And it's worth it's definitely worth a read. Great article. Yeah, they did a nice uh, in job. the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, another article that caught our eye um, had me saying, what in the world is going on with Amazon? Our news partner, 6ABC, did an investigation that raised safety concerns among about Amazon delivery folks. Apparently, they're getting in these crashes in our region. And new lawsuits claims that Amazon's business model shields the company from liability for those crashes. And now, Avi, let me explain. Sure. The way Amazon works is it outsources delivery operations. They contract these so-called delivery service partners or DSPs. These are independent contractors that allow Amazon to, you know, grow their network pretty quickly. They hire these folks, but they're under this pressure to deliver the packages between a certain time. And so in order to meet the, the, the delivery times, they tend to forego safety, they speed, and so we've seen this. That's this, the accusation. This, yeah, that's least. the accusation, yeah. allegedly. And it's causing crashes. But when you sue, Amazon says, we're not liable. These are independent contractors. You can't get to us. So people have to go for the small guy and not for uh, the big company. Yeah. And to me, this raises a lot of issues about, you know, you know, independent contracting. Could these folks eventually be considered, you know, employees? Uh, it's also going to, you know, should they get more training? What's going on? Because um, the past few years, there have been reports to say that about one in five uh, Amazon drivers have suffered some sort of injury. Um, wow. That's a, yeah, that's on a the job. That's mark. a pretty yep. high mark. And they have some of the lowest marks um, for safety. Um, that's according to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. I want to clarify one thing you said. Yeah. I believe it's about half of packages are delivered by these DSPs. So it's not that not, none of the none drivers of them, yeah. are, work for Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what was interesting to me is that I assumed, just as a layperson, that the DSPs who were Amazon drivers um, were the ones that were driving the unmarked vehicles. But mm-hmm. some of those marked Amazon vans are apparently... Uh, driven by people who are in this contracting mm-hmm. group because you can rent the vans or mm-hmm. you know and things like that so so I, I thought that was really interesting um, and we actually did something about this on studio two about last mile package mm-hmm. delivery right before the holidays and one of the things I took away from that conversation is that you know a generation ago the people that delivered packages they had to know the route yeah I mean there was no other way to get from A to B. They needed to know the, the the geography, the streets. Today, it's mostly people following directions given to them uh, by a route optimization app. Mm-hmm. And so I do wonder a little bit if that plays into some of the safety concerns because you, you don't have to be familiar with the streetscape. You just kind of have to follow the yeah. route as quickly as you possibly can. I don't know. I'm purely just <laughs> guessing here, but it, yeah. it did come to mind because we had talked about this on the show earlier about how just sort of like the baseline knowledge of the people driving 
has shifted so dramatically. Yeah, and yeah, this is definitely an interesting story, definitely flagged and definitely something to keep an eye on. And uh, another thing, because it's Valentine's Day. Yeah, well, I want to quote someone here. Yes. Uh, this, is, this poem is about 60 years old. Uh, oh, yeah, I'll tell you something. I think you'll understand. When I say that something, I want to hold your hand. Ooh, I like that. And I can hear it in my head. I want to hold your <laughs> Hit that high note. Hit that high note. Um, so the Beatles said that a long time ago. Uh-huh. And they, they were on to something because there's apparently a lot of research. And the Washington Post flagged this this morning about um, the science of handholding oh. and why it sort of lights up our brain. They've done all sorts of studies. They talked to someone who's an expert in hand-holding, which, first of all, fantastic. If you can carve that out as a career, good for you. That sounds fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, But this expert in hand-holding was talking about sort of why we're so attracted to it and what about hand-holding seems to to make our brain light up, but also distinguishing between different types of hand-holding. Like in some of these experiments they've done, they've been able to prove that if you have an intimate relationship with the hand that you're holding, you have a stronger brain response, which I thought was really, really interesting. So hand-holding is like deep. It goes, it speaks to something in our biology um, that is well below the surface. And I never thought about that. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. We are, as humans, are wired to be touched. So, you know, it's Valentine's Day, hold a hand. Hold a hand today. Can I tell a quick story? Anytime I'm with my wife on a plane, by the way, happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. Uh, um, I always reach out to hold her hand when we're taking off. And if she's not there, I kind of freak out a little bit. Oh, and so I'm learning so much about it, you. It's Abby. something, and I've never even thought about it before, but there is something about the sensation of taking off in an airplane that makes me want to hold her hand. And I've, I've never really thought I about why until hold today. Your hand. Yeah. The Beatles knew. They always there you knew. Go. They always knew. And so we're going to move on to our newsmaker right now. Democrats retained their majority in the Pennsylvania House yesterday after the special election in Bucks County. Jim Prokopiak, a former school board member, beat out Republican challenger, challenger Candace Cannabis. Cabanis, excuse me, giving Democrats a two seat advantage at 102 to 100. Some political observers called this election a litmus test for November's general election. Here with us now is the voice you just heard, WHYY reporter Kenny Cooper, who has been covering this Bucks County race. Kenny, welcome back to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us first about this district in so, Bucks County. Where is it and what does it look like politically? This district is essentially the Levittown area. So you're talking Falls Township, uh, you know, that, that surrounding area. So historically, it's always lean Democrat. Um, and, you know, heading into this election, Democrats were pretty confident that they were going to secure this area. And so talk. So this was Democrats kind of were confident. But tell us about this race uh, and the two the folks going against each other. Propokia, I'm messing everybody's name up today. The two candidates. Tell us about them. Yeah. So Prokopiak is a uh, Pensbury School District board member. He's also an attorney by trade, and he has a history as a former Falls Township supervisor. And he was going up against Candace Cabanis, who uh, hails from, you know, Lancaster County and actually recently moved to Bucks County within the last five years. Uh, But she was heavily involved with uh, local GOP politics out in Lancaster. And you kind of had this clash of someone that is a 
waitress, uh, food server by trade, and someone that is a school board member that works as an attorney. But ultimately, they were fighting for the same type of voters. They were fighting for working class, lower Bucks County voters. Um, And because of the nature of a special election, they only had eight weeks. Mm. Uh, And given the time of the special election, part of those eight weeks included Christmas and New Year's. Uh, So they were kind of left with two weeks. So as uh, Jim Prokopiak told me last night, it was more like a sprint. Dems invested in the race. Republicans did not. So that tells you a lot. But can you glean anything from the margins, even though we expected Democrats to win and to hold? They did. Anything that you feel like the margins in this race might tell us about what's coming later in 2024? So I think there's two takeaways, right? Uh, Nationally, uh, this race gained national attention just because of the tactics that uh, Pennsylvania House Democratic candidates have been using over the past year. That's how they took their majority uh, by attaching their Republican counterparts to Donald Trump, yeah. to uh, the, the rightward shift of the Republican Party. The MAGA movement. The MAGA movement. Yeah. Um, and it's been a winning strategy for them. So I, I think that's one takeaway, right? The other takeaway is more so, you know, locally. It's the fact that you have a place like Bucks County, similar to Chester County, Delaware County, that has historically been Republican. And like you said, even though, you know, the Democrats expect to win this race, the margins were a little bit wider than expected. It was 67-33 about, right? So I think that what that tells you is that you're seeing this uh, evolution of Bucks County politically that's happening much faster than people anticipated. Yeah, you keep wondering when that's going to plateau in the suburbs, and it just keeps drifting left and left and left, or at least voting for Dems and Dems and Dems. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, as you kind of look ahead to November, yeah. right, um, you know, historically, the winner of the presidency performs well, yep. or at least, you know, will take over the suburbs of Philadelphia. So it's a very important area. Could be a bellwether. Thanks so much. That's WHYY suburban reporter Kenny Cooper. Thanks for being with us today on Thanks. Studio Two. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, climate scientist Michael Mann joins us to talk about winning his defamation suit and what it means for science. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back. Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, folks. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt, and I want to take you back to 2009, that long ago time. The Black Eyed Peas ruled the pop world. They did. Avatar ruled the box office. Mm-hmm. And a plurality of Americans told Gallup pollsters that the seriousness of global warming was generally exaggerated. And it was in this environment that an email hack at an English university set the science world on fire. The email started a digital trail that led back to our next guest, famed climate scientist Michael Mann. Mann's research became a target of investigations and climate deniers. The investigations cleared his name, but the deniers kept on attacking. And so Mann hit back. He sued a pair of bloggers for defamation. And after a 12-year legal journey, Mann won that case earlier this week a jury awarded him $1 million in compensatory damages. 
Michael Mann is with us today to tell us about that case, why he fought it, and what this verdict means for the scientific community. He is the Presidential Distinguished Professor of Earth and Environmental Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also Director of the Penn Science, Sustainability, and the Media. Michael, welcome back to Studio Two. Big title there. (laughs) Thanks, guys. It's great to be back with you. If you have questions or comments about Michael's work, his case, call us 888-477-9499. The email address is studio2 at whyy.org. Michael, I started to walk through it in that intro, but I would love for you to just go with through this with me, this whole timeline. So we start back in 2009. There's this hack. And you're referenced in some emails, including this reference to Mike's trick. So so take me back to that time first. What happened? And then how does that like lead to the lawsuit eventually? Yeah, so this was part of an ongoing assault on climate science that began decades ago. And sort of the culmination of that, if you will, was the hack in 2009, uh, the email hack that w- was actually intended uh, to sort of um, uh, to hijack the Copenhagen summit, which mm-hmm. the upcoming uh, summit of the Conference of the Parties, COP, uh, the, the International Climate Conference, um, that many saw as the first opportunity in years for meaningful policy progress. And to hijack that, what uh, climate deniers, working with some nebulous, probably some state actors that were involved in this, um, uh, hacked into uh, this server, this uh, university server, stole thousands of emails, some of it uh, were between me and colleagues, and mined them for individual words or phrases that, uh, taken out of context, could make it sound like the scientists were engaged in nefarious activity. For instance, Mike's trick. Exactly. Mm -hmm. A trick, you know, uh, in the popular lexicon, like a trick, a nasty trick that you play on somebody. But to mathematicians and statisticians and scientists, a trick is just a clever, uh, uh, you know, approach to solving a problem. In fact, it's sort of like when we use trick of the trade, right. um, that's, that's the idea. And that's what it was referring to, something that was completely appropriate. The journal Nature that had published the article in question weighed in and said there's nothing inappropriate. Uh, but, you know, I think it was, it was Mark Twain who said, you know, a lie can travel halfway right. around the world in, in, in the time that the, the truth is just getting its boots on. So the journalists, a lot of journalists looked into this hack and the emails that contained in the hack found basically nothing. Um, then there were investigations, formal investigations by Penn State um, and the NSF into your work cleared you, cleared your name. A but dozen, a dozen investigations. A in dozen the US investigations. In the UK, yeah. And you come out. You're fine. Your research is corroborated. But then you get yeah. to 2012. And tell us what happens then. Yeah, so all this had uh, really died down, right? Uh, we'd put this behind us. Uh, there had been all these investigations that had cleared our name, my name, the name of uh, other climate scientists. Uh, but then there was the uh, Jerry Sandusky matter at Penn State. And mm-hmm. my detractors, since I was at Penn State, saw this as an opportunity once again to try to malign me. And they literally compared me to a convicted child molester, to uh, Jerry Sandusky, and accused me um, in the process of engaging in fraud. Uh, and, you know, these were false allegations. They were legally actionable. Uh, a colleague of mine wrote me an email. He actually was the one who alerted me to these two pieces in National Review Online and in uh, 
uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which is a right-wing think tank on their mm-hmm. website, these two blogs that were making these uh, defamatory allegations against me. He alert, uh, alerted it to me, and he said, you know, if I were you, I'd be talking to your lawyer. And that's exactly what I did. And so let's talk about the decision to take on this lawsuit, because defamation lawsuits are really tough, especially when you're like someone like yourself, very prominent, well-known in the field and in the world. Why choose a defamation lawsuit? Yeah, you know... uh I felt like I had to draw a line in the sand, and this clearly stepped past, you know, I, it's okay to criticize, you know, science, to criticize scientists. That's all, you know, it's, it's appropriate. It's fair. It, in fact, scientists criticizing each other is part of what, you know, the great Carl Sagan mm-hmm. characterizes as the self-correcting machinery of scientists, true skepticism. These are good things, but that doesn't, you know, uh, include making false allegations intended to discredit scientists and comparing them to child molesters. That mm-hmm. clearly goes beyond any reasonable definition of protected speech. Um, and you're absolutely right, because I'm a public figure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a higher standard. You have to prove actual malice. Malice, yes. Which means you have to show that they either knew their statements were false um, or that they acted with reckless disregard for the truth. And the jury found that they acted with reckless disregard for the truth. What do you think were the facts that sort of put them over the, the hump? Because the jury was unanimous uh, in your favor. Well, this, I have to say it was a great jury. Um, a Washington, D.C. jury, uh, very diverse um, uh, jury pool, um, well-educated. Um, and, uh, you know, and they, they, they could, you know, sort of see through the smoke and mirrors that the other side tried to put up. In the end, the question was, were these allegations defensible? Uh, were they made with malicious intent? Uh, you know, they're not defensible is what they found. They did find that they were made with malicious intent. So they saw through to the sort of core of the issue, despite all of the distractions that the other side tried to put their way. And Michael, they only gave you $1 in compensatory <laughs> damages right. from each defendant, but a million dollars from one defendant and $1,000 from the other um, did in you impunitive and, as impunitive yeah, damages yeah. and and what what damages you suffered? I mean, because tell yeah. us what you went through during that time. Yeah, and I um, actually used those compensatory damages the other day at Starbucks. It was very, <laughs> it was very that one dollar. It was very helpful. What do you get at Starbucks <laughs> for a buck these days? Well, it was actually one for each, so it was two dollars. Okay, so two dollars. Right. I think yeah. um, I think I got a tall. No, <laughs> so um, oh, they get a coffee. For that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I think what the jury decided in the end, you know, I think they saw that there was, um, anguish on my part. My family and me suffered from these defamatory allegations. I think what they did is they looked at my career and the other, you know, and, and, and they said, he's done okay. It isn't Mm -hmm. obvious that he's been fundamentally damaged. We, We argue that there, there were real damages there, but in the end, I think what they recognized is the real issue is, um, making, you know, that there needs to be punishment. For, for this these sorts of actions, yeah. they need to be yeah. deterred, and that's why there were the uh, you know, the punitive damages of a million dollars. And I actually want I know this might be hard for you to hear, Mike, but I do want folks to to hear what this guy Rand Simberg wrote about you originally on the the blog for Competitive Enterprise Institute. Man could be said to be the Jerry Sandusky of climate scientists. Mm. Science, except that instead of molesting children, he has molested and tortured data in the service of politicized science that could have dire economic consequences for the nation and planet. I'm sure that was hard to read 12 years ago. 
and maybe still today. However, you still had to ask yourself, if I go through this long mm-hmm. journey, you didn't know it was going to be 12 years, but you knew it was going to be a long journey. If I go through this long legal journey, you know, will I Streisand affect this guy? Will I give him attention that allows him or people like him to continue to fight this phony battle against climate scientists? Um, was that a consideration for you? I mean, because look, there's still a spotlight yeah. on these two guys all these years later. Yeah, you know, uh, that's always a consideration, right? Are you going to amplify these criticisms by responding to them? That's something you always have to think about. Um, And you have to weigh that against, um, you know, the importance of drawing a line in the sand. When somebody (laughs) compares you to a convicted child molester, that crosses the line. And we we had to press the case. We had had to, you know, when they refused to apologize and and retract uh, the articles, because that's all we asked initially when they refused to do that, we knew we had to pursue this to in the end, to make a statement, because there, it isn't just me. It's other climate scientists who are looking at this and, oh, gee, if I speak out about the, you know, the climate crisis, maybe I will be vilified and attacked in this way. And so we felt it was really important to draw that line in the sand and, and to prevail, which is what we did here. You called this a win for science, and, and you just touched upon, you know, some of the issues that other client scientists might be facing. Explain that statement. How is this a win for science? And I, I even ask, could it be a win for other areas where there are deniers or folks that uh, don't want to believe what they're, the, the truth that they're trying to tell? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we live in this era of massive misinformation and mm-hmm. disinformation, disinformation campaigns, and certainly scientists have been targeted, not just climate scientists, but look at public health scientists like my friend Peter Hotez, like uh, Anthony Fauci. And so, and this has infected our entire body politic now, right? These bad faith attacks um, on, on truth and, and democratic governance. Um, there are bigger issues that are involved here. And so I do think this speaks to a bigger issue. And let me just make one more gratuitous uh, comment here. Um, you know, there's something even more important at stake, the climate crisis is the greatest challenge that we face as a civilization. The gratuitous comment is, I happen to have recently published this book, Our yes. Fragile Moment. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, that, and that was my effort to communicate two very important things. There is great urgency. We're seeing devastating co- uh, climate consequences, but there's also agency. It's not too late for us to act. And that's the larger message. And it's so important that scientists be able to get that message out here. So I like to think that maybe my fellow scientists will feel mm-hmm. a little more comfortable now because of the result of, of this um, trial in being out there and not being afraid to speak to truth to power and, and, and doing all we can to communicate the yeah. gravity of the problem and the fact that it isn't too late to do something. We're speaking with Michael Mann, author of Our Fragile Moment, also a presidential distinguished professor of earth and environmental science at the University of Pennsylvania. We're not talking about science today. We're talking, however, about his uh, major lawsuit victory recently in a defamation case against a pair of bloggers, um, a case that went on for 12 years. If you have comments, studio2 at org is the email address. Um, you just mentioned something um, about the role of scientists in society, and it made me think about the fact that, you know, scientists have always discovered things that inconvenience people in power. And sometimes those people in power make scapegoats out of scientists. Just ask Galileo, right? <laughs> what about this moment feels different to you? Or maybe it doesn't feel different at all from, you know, what scientists have faced in the past. 
Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it, it's true. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Galileo to be clear. I did that. I did that. <laughs> but there, right, you, you understand the parallel, right? Well, you, you know, you're right. I mean, here's the irony, right? Science has given us so much. It's given us the technology we have today, the, the modern conveniences that we have, our way of life. And so science has, has given us so much, and, 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 and we're all comfortable with that. But when science treads on powerful special interests, be it the you know carbon polluters, the fossil fuel industry, the tobacco industry, the gun lobby, um, or you know now the politicized um, you know COVID nineteen space. Um, whenever the findings of science find themselves on a collision course with powerful vested interests, we know what's happened. It's what happened with Galileo yep. and the challenge against the church. Um, and it's what we see today with powerful industries that find the science about climate change and, and public health um, you know, uh, measures to be inconvenient to their, their own ideological or political or economic interests. And, and I wonder about this. I wonder what tools you have available to you because it took you 12 years with a defamation lawsuit. Did you feel like there were options to fight this? Like what what do you see, you know, because you are just a man, right? <laughs> and so what, what tools did you feel, you know, you had in your toolbox to fight the deniers? The, the most important tool of all, the truth. Mm -hmm. um, we knew we had that on our side, and we had faith that it would prevail, that a jury, a smart, uh, well-educated, diverse Washington, D.C. jury would get it, and, and they did. And, and I'll tell you, I can't tell you, actually, how, how many scientists, and I won't name them by name, mm -hmm. but um, some of the leaders of some of our largest scientific organizations who have since the, um, the decision have come to me and thanked me because they recognized that, yeah, maybe this was about me and defending yeah. my reputation, but it was about something much bigger than that. And, and I think the scientific community recognizes that. And again, I hope that one of the benefits of this, of having gone through 12 years of, of hell, <laughs> I'll, I'll be clear, it's not fun to do this. It's not fun to be in a courtroom for four weeks um, having uh, people engage in those same bad faith efforts to discredit you in front of the jury. Um, uh, you know, the, the defamatory attacks continued through the trial. Um, that it's not fun to go through that, but the stakes are too great here. The stakes really are about about the sanctity of science and the freedom that scientists feel in communicating hard truths to the public and policymakers. You mentioned earlier Dr. Anthony Fauci, who of course has mm -hmm. been the target uh, of all sorts of attacks, many of them political in nature. But a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal linked the two of you in a less flattering way. This is from William McGurn, who said, with both Dr. Fauci and Mr. Mann, the real issue is not so much that they got things wrong, but that they tried to suppress the robust debate that is necessary for scientific truth. There are people who might be uh, very much in alignment with your views on climate science, but are free speech absolutists and see this as a way to chill speech. What's your response? Well, let's just start out by saying, you know, the Rupert Murdoch's media empire and the Wall Street Journal editorial pages have promoted more climate denialism than any other institution. They've done more damage to the world than any other 
you know, journalistic outlet I can think of, other than Fox News, another Murdoch outlet. Um, and so it's sort of the up is down, black is white world of denialism where Anthony Fauci was right. He followed the science and it evolved. Public, under, you know, scientific understanding evolved and, and, and he followed that. Um, and there's a process. And, and so he was right. Um, and, you know, the jury recognized that we were right, that this was, the hockey stick wasn't fraudulent, that National Academy of Sciences has weighed in and, and affirmed our findings. And so our findings were right. Um, and the issue in our case wasn't whether somebody was challenging my science. That's fine. Uh, we've had good faith challenges in the peer-reviewed literature at scientific meetings. That's the way science moves forward. Skepticism, legitimate Good faith skepticism is a good thing in science, but bad faith efforts to denounce scientists, not based on any logical reasoning or facts, but based on an ideology, an ideology um, of, of denialism, that has no place um, in, in science. And there was a great editorial just uh, yesterday in the journal Science by the editor-in-chief of the journal Science, um, you know, the the sort of leading science journal in, in the country, um, uh, making these very points that, look, it, it's, you know, there it isn't, um, you know, uh, basically, to, to paraphrase what he said, scientists shouldn't apologize mm -hmm. for, you know, for, for, for speaking out about the science and its implications. In fact, what would be much more dangerous to all of us would be if scientists felt afraid to do that. And, and that's, you know, we have about a minute and a half left, and that was my follow-up question. To Avi's question is, you know, we don't want to chill science, you know? And the Brennan Center just came out with a report that said that, you know, attacks against democracy workers, election workers, has impacted their decision-making. Your advice to folks who may see and may get those barrage of attacks on making sure that this doesn't chill their work. Yeah, I would say just be brave and recognize the stakes are too great for us to back down, whether it's the defense of science or the defense of democratic governance, because both are under attack today, let's be clear, by this new political right that we face in the United States. And that is the voice of Michael Mann, climate scientist at Penn, director of the Penn Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media, and author of Our Fragile Moment. And I guess I should add... Uh, recently, Victor, Victor <laughs> in a 12-year lawsuit. There are actually more twists and turns to come potentially in this, some appeals. Um, you're appealing a decision, I believe, about whether the National Review should be liable for this. I guess we'll just say stay tuned <laughs> on all of that as we wrap up this segment. But Michael Mann, thank you for the time today on Studio 2. Thanks, guys. And you at least get to celebrate this week. And this is Valentine's Day. So coming up next, we'll get a take from Gen Z with WHYY's Spoken Youth Podcast. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Oh, my friends, platonic friends, welcome back to Studio <laughs> Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Valentine's Day, Avi, is the ideal holiday 
for watching a classic rom-com or two or maybe even a marathon. Who doesn't want to get swept away by the -the over-the-top romance and that perfect moment at the end of the movie when everything comes together for a happy couple? I know who doesn't. Oh, who? Gen Z. Oh. Teenagers (laughs) say they want less sex and romance in their movies and TV shows. They told UCLA researchers there should be more platonic relationships on screen and they're just kind of turned off by steamy scenes. Now, to get a little more info, we went straight to the source, the young folks themselves. High school students in WHYY's Pathways to Media Careers program explain what's going on in this installment of their podcast, Spoken Youth. Hi, I'm Samaya, and I'm here with Zen and Amelia. Hello. Hi. And don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. We're going to have to work at this every day, but I want to do that because I want you. I want all of you forever, you and me, every day. (laughs) I love you. You complete me. And I just had... Shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. Here's a Gen Z term for you. Nomance. It's a portmanteau made from no and romance. Recently, a UCLA study found that almost half of adolescents from ages 13 to 24 felt that romance is overused in media and sex is unnecessary for the plot of most TV shows and movies. So that's what we're talking about today. This idea of romance and nomance in media, especially made for teens. talked about this in the past, this um, imbalance between shows and movies and stuff with a lot of romance and sex and stuff in it, which, like, is great. Sure. Have your your Bridgerton, Heartstopper, whatever. And the object of all my desires. Night and day, I dream of you. And then, you know, there's not so much on the other side for people who'd prefer have mostly platonic relationships shown. I, I get that, definitely. I definitely find myself trying to look for shows that are definitely more on the wholesome side. They're more platonic and they don't really have any sex or anything even close to that. It's pretty hard to find. I've never been in a romantic relationship, so what I understand about them comes from TV. And if it's portrayed in in the wrong way that's not based in reality, then that's sort of what I go about assuming. So I think that it's important that things be at least more close to reality than they are currently. The image of how we see relationships is largely in part of what we're consuming, which is TV. So Hollywood should take more of a responsibility in creating more options for other people. So the pandemic has definitely added to the fact that a lot of kids are feeling lonely. Barely contact with our friends, barely any contact with people who want our family. So when we have these TV shows and we have these movies that are all just so much romance and so much sex, and then because of the pandemic, a lot of Gen Z aren't very good at social interactions because we were alone and away from for so long. We don't see people like that on shows who are single and just... Just be living life. Living life, yeah. <laughs> and also in the UCLA study, 
39% want to see more content focused on aromantic and or asexual characters on screen. Recently, there's been more representation of gay characters on screen, um, trans characters, but there still is lacking in the area of aromantic and asexual. And I think that's important that people see themselves represented on screen and and have that, that feeling like they're not alone. You realize, of course, that we can never be friends. Why not? What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape, or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I don't, no, don't. like yes, that every boy and girl friendship has to be romantic at some point. Mm-hmm. Sometimes right. people can just be friends. Yeah. And I I see that all the time. Yeah, I definitely... I definitely agree with that, especially for, like, teenage and younger kids showing that it's okay to be single, it's okay to not have a significant other is a really big thing. I don't know if you remember when you were younger, a boy and a girl could not just be friends to the entire grade or to your your classmates. There was always something hidden underneath that. And as a guy who grew up mainly with female friends, I, I very much so was ostracized from the guys in my middle school because of that because they were like well you're just hogging all the girls then (laughs) (laughs) hogging the girls and i'm sitting here like what do you mean i'm hogging the girls i'm just friends with them one of the reasons why that is ingrained in our minds so much is what we see on tv i just came to see I don't think it's just because we're teenagers, you know, people might think, oh, you'll grow up and then, oh, you'll learn the taste of romance or whatever and it'll, you'll have more appreciation for it. And not that I don't have appreci- appreciation for romance right now, sex scenes will never be something I ever enjoy. This has been Spoken Youth and happy Valentine's Day or Galentine's or whatever you choose to celebrate on February 14th. Least romantic Valentine's Day show ever. Yeah, but they have a point. I I respect their point of view. We started talking about how many single people Mm -hmm. there are. That was the top of the show. We ended with that. And now, no man's. Is there hope for love? You have a favorite rom-com? Um... Not really. No, nothing I'm top not, of the I'm list. I'm not like super rom commy, but I know. like when Harry met Sally. That is a good. That's one, That's a though. good one. It's yeah. a classic. They quoted it there. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's worth the quote. Um, love, love. I love love. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're right. They have a point. They do have a point, and I respect it. You know, every generation is different. There you go. Um, thanks to everyone who dropped by Studio Two Office Hours mm-hmm. today, which is a new mm-hmm. thing we're doing on Instagram Live right before the show starts. Um, we go on Instagram. You can watch us prep for the show, ask us questions. A bunch of people dropped in today. Yeah. So follow at Cherry Greg. Yeah. On or, and at WHYY. We were live through WHYY's Instagram. Or at WHYY yeah. if you want to join us for a future Studio mm-hmm. Two Office Hours before the show starts. Yep. Every day there's a show. And tomorrow on our show, we'll talk about why child's play should be riskier, more speed, more heights, more tumbling, more fun. We discuss a new study about the importance of risky play and a new playground at FDR Park right here in Philadelphia. And we have a conversation with restaurateur Ellen Yin and children's book writer Grace Lynn about food and the Lunar New Year. So come back 
tomorrow at noon. And tomorrow night, we have the Studio 2 Mingle event for members. There's still time to get tickets. It's going to be a blast. We'll be interviewing science journalist Catherine Price about fun, why it's so good for us to have it. Tickets are available at whyy.org slash events. Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Besser, Andreas Copes, our producers, Tina Calake, our engineer. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thanks for joining us.